There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Millennial Love, a podcast from The Independent on everything to do with love, sexuality, identity, and more. This week, I am very excited to be joined by the award-winning author Juno Dawson. Juno is a renowned writer of young adult fiction. Her latest book, Wonderland, is a contemporary retelling of Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, in which Alice is a transgender teenager. We discuss the impact of this on the show along with one of Juno's side projects, a podcast called So I Got to Thinking, which is based on questions raised by Sex in the City's Carrie Bradshaw, which, as anyone who knows me will attest, is one of my favourite subjects. Enjoy the show! Hi, Juno. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm okay, yes. I'm exhausted. I'm having what I refer to as lockdown insomnia, which is not the one. But it's like, since we've been in lockdown, I've had like three really gnarly patches where my sleep has just absolutely gone to shit. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. I just did. Sorry. You can, you can swear. That's so annoying. I've been finding the same, actually. I don't know if it's like low-level anxiety or maybe it's the heat because it's very hot in the UK at the moment. A little bit of everything I think and as well sort of trying to juggle work stuff at a time when it's not easy to work and I think one of my favourite things has been that assumption that well creatives to use the sort of millennial phrase that we should be able to work as normal because well you know you can work from home so what what's the problem and I'm like well yeah but I haven't really seen my friends for three months um I'm not allowed to go see my family I'm not feeling in the most creative headspace and yet and yet Mm. apparently I'm supposed to be business as usual which is difficult yeah, there's this whole chat, isn't there, about like, oh, now is the perfect time to, you know, write that book. That you write that book. <laughs> like, uh, I say this, I am actually writing a book at the moment and it's bloody hard work. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. So can you start off by telling us a bit about how you're finding lockdown in general? Because I understand that you and your fiance, you had to postpone your wedding, didn't you? When was that meant to happen? That was meant to be next week. So we were supposed to get married on June the 6th. Sorry, I don't know when this is going. Out. June 6th was supposed to be our wedding. Um, which strangely is now going to be the night that I'm appearing on Pointless Celebrities. So, you know, everything happens for a reason because it means now I can stay home and watch myself on BBC One, which is potentially one of the biggest moments in my career. So that would have been really weird if that had happened on my wedding day. Like, would we have all stopped the wedding to watch Pointless? How would that have worked? So it would certainly be a unique wedding. So have you rearranged it for next year? We have. So we decided... I suppose I'm quite lucky in that my maid of honour, who is my best friend Kerry, is wildly pessimistic. And she said months ago, she was like this horrible harbinger of doom. And she was saying as early as like February and March, like, you might want to think about your wedding. And we were kind of like, what do you mean? You know, that's, it's like six months away. What could possibly happen? You know, this was when it was even still the virus was still very much happening in mostly China and then started to spread out from there. And she was just like, no, this is going to, basically this is going to spread and it's going to take this year out. And 
so pretty early on in March, I started sending out some emails saying, look, what's the, what's the situation with this? Like if we need to cancel or postpone the wedding, where do we stand? And Max and I, my sister, my fiance, we said really early on, which is worse, like rebooking the wedding and moving it all into next year or waiting and seeing. And amazingly, we still know people who are planning to get married in July and August. And we just don't know. And they don't know if that's going to be possible. So the one thing that we've not had to deal with is uncertainty. So we've rebooked for next March. We've got the caterer booked, the venue booked. So assuming, assuming they don't, their businesses don't go bust, which of course they could because they've lost their busiest period of this year has completely gone. And so actually the wedding industry, it hasn't been talked about a lot in the news, but actually the wedding industry is in huge trouble. Like photographers, caterers, DJs, bands, wedding dress designers it's yeah. all it's all taken a massive bite out of their business it's a nightmare i think for anyone who works in events just in general to be honest isn't it mm-hmm. because none of us know how long it's going to be until we're able to have large gatherings i suppose the people who you know who are having weddings in july and august i guess if those weddings are able to go ahead i highly doubt they'll be allowed that many people or because, I mean, we only had, we were due to have 80 guests, which kind of counts as like a small wedding, all things considered. But to me, and you know, I was grumpy. I was, I was grumpy when we sort of had to make the decision, but I sort of figured, why are we doing this? And for me, because, spoiler alert, I'm not saving myself for marriage. It's about being married to Max and having a marriage, not a wedding, an actual marriage, And then also having an amazing day with my mates. And if I can't have either of those things, there's not really any point in doing it. Mm. And to my mind, I can't see the point in having a wedding if all my friends and family can't come. So I I would rather wait 10 years. And and if that meant that all my friends and family could come. So yeah, I mean, I'm praying for rain on June the 6th. Nothing would make me happier than if it was shit weather. Oh, Um, that would be so thrilling if it was just you woke up and said oh why would I want to get married on this day anyway it's pissing it down with rain it would have classic British weather it probably will well it, at the moment the forecast keeps changing it could because it looks like we're going to have glorious weather up until June the 6th and it looks like June the 6th is the turning point so um it would be nothing would make me happier than a rainy day because in June had it rained we would have been gutted but next March I guess we'll almost be kind of prepared it might well rain we understand that next march it could rain but we'll we'll make provision for that but in june i don't know if we would have right well i hope that your wedding is able to go ahead in march and we are out of this horrible virus by then but obviously who knows um so but something that you have been uh, allowed to release now and something that hasn't been delayed by covid is your wonderful new book wonderland and that comes out the day that we're recording this doesn't it that's right, yeah. We, and we very nearly postponed that as well. There was a lot of, sort of around the same time, we had conversations about, well, do we move Wonderland as well? And what stopped me in the end was more, we don't really know what's going to happen. And then that was the thing we were trying to second guess it as well. And sort of saying, well, what if we moved it to August? And we're like, well, we don't really know what's going to be happening in August either. So we decided to just plow ahead it's not ideal. Um, you know, my publishers back, back then were very confident that by May the 28th, bookshops would be open again. Of course, they're not. But we are told they will probably be open in the next fortnight, which is great. 
but no, I mean, it's not ideal releasing a book to closed bookshops, but it's been really encouraging. Waterstones, who've always supported my career right from my very first novel, did a huge pre-order deal whereby I signed a thousand copies for Waterstones. And so people were able to pre-order through waterstones.com and get a signed copy of the book. And it's been really encouraging today because normally on a release day, I would take myself out to a local bookshop and kind of see the book in the wild, which is such a, an, it's always even, I think, I think one land is about my 16th title, but it's still amazing to see them on a bookshelf in a Waterstones yeah. or in foils or somewhere like that. And obviously I've, I've not been able to do that. Yeah, it's a real shame. I think that's, it's a real struggle for a lot of people in the publishing industry at the moment. Again, I mean, obviously a lot of people are reading, but it's just, it's not quite the same as, you know, obviously going into a bookshop. But can mm. you, um, so Wonderland is sort of a contemporary retelling of Alice in Wonderland. Uh, can you, but there, there are lots of, lots of major differences. Mm. <laughs> so can you start off by telling the listeners a bit about the book and what made you want to write it? It came about, first of all, I was in Melbourne touring my novel Clean two years ago. Um, and there was an amazing exhibit on uh, ACCA, which is the... Um, something Centre of Cultural Arts or something, Australian Centre for Cultural Arts. And um, it was all about visual representations of Alice and how she has looked from the original illustrations to photos of the real life Alice Liddell to the various Disney versions and film versions. And it struck me that everyone has this culturally agreed notion of who Alice is, what she looks like. We, even if you've never read the book, you understand the Queen of Hearts and off with her head and all those sorts of things. And so I thought, well, what if I was to sort of do a Juno Dawson remix of that? Because you're dealing with things which are very iconic and everybody kind of knows the plot as well. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, what is it I bring to the table? What, what is it I do? And and that was, it, so it sort of started out as a bit of a thought experiment. But then as soon as I started spending time with the characters, I was just, it's just a blast because, you know, I knew where the story was going to go kind of. So she has to, she falls in love with a girl called Bunny. Mm. Um, and then she gets this mysterious invite to a festival called Wonderland. And then she goes to Wonderland and meets a pair of YouTubers called the Tweedle Twins. And the, the whole thing is run by this girl called Paisley Hart, who's the queen of hearts. And, and so there was, it was just each, with each chapter, I was just having more and more fun. Um, yeah, it was an absolute blast. It kind of wrote itself. And I think that's when you know you're onto a winner when it's, it's just not work. It never felt like work. And crucially also Alice, Alice is obviously trans and she's what, she's 17 in the book, in your version? Yeah. Which is which is really, really revolutionary, especially in YA fiction. I mean, it shouldn't be, obviously, but I think it's so wonderful to the one of the best things about Wonderland is that the characters kind of span myriad sexual identities and genders and preferences. And that is, like I said, it is really rare to see that in YA fiction. So why do you think reading a story like that will have such an impact on a young adult? And, you know, would that as you, if you had read that as a young adult, do you think that would have impact, impacted your own gender dysphoria and sort of, I don't know, how would that have affected you reading a book like that when you were young? I mean, it would have made a, a huge difference. Um, I always think when it comes to writing about minority characters, you know, you are, you are either in a minority yourself or you live with people who are. We, we all share one planet. 
And so I think whether you are a trans reader or not, um, I think it's good to put yourself in someone else's shoes and sort of try. And that's why I think it's really great that you kind of already know who she is. She's still Alice in Wonderland, but this version of her is trans. And there's been a million versions of Alice. You know, there's been a Hello Kitty Alice in Wonderland. There's been so many. So it's not a big stretch to understand, oh, I know who she is, but also she's trans. So that you already have a starting point with her. Um, there are, I'm not the first author to do um, trans characters in YA. There was a, a great book about five years ago called The Art of Being Normal by Lisa Williamson. Um, Lisa worked at a gender clinic for teenagers. So, so Lisa is not trans, but she had lots of frontline experience working with trans youth, which is why that novel feels really truthful. Um, but I suppose what I was trying to do with my Alice was, you know, she is 17 in the novel, but she started her transition at secondary school. So she's, she's kind of over it. And that's somewhere, I guess, where I'm at as well in my life, which is a bit of what else. I think the media is very hung up on this idea that being trans is a bit of a makeover. But of course, once you go through the whole coming out process, you have your whole life to lead. And I think that's where Alice is. She's kind of, she's, been through the thorniest parts of her transition and now she's like well I suppose she's ready to step out into the world and sort of see what else is out there but for me on a personal level you know I grew up in the 90s um, during section 28 so my teachers and school librarians were legally not allowed to give me a book like Wonderland yeah so, that is so that is so mad I mean obviously the sex education syllabus is completely archaic as it is i think it's only as of this september in england when lgbt mm. education is actually being brought on to the syllabus i like only now only this year it's completely bonkers would you mind just explaining what section 28 is to the listeners of course it was a piece of legislation brought in by margaret thatcher in 1988 um, and actually it was inspired by a book about gay dads and really? the daily the daily yeah it was called jenny lives with eric and martin and it was a kid's book, like a picture book about a little girl with two dads. And the Daily Mail got hold of it. And there was just like this moral panic, basically. And so she brought in a piece of legislation that forbid local authorities from promoting homosexuality as an assumed family situation. Um, and so what that meant was, and because it was such a vague piece of legislation, teachers and librarians and youth workers were very, very scared to say anything in case they lost their jobs, basically. And so that meant a generation, well, my generation, so now we're looking at kind of queer people in their 30s, really, were just a bit fucked because <laughs> we weren't allowed to kind of, we weren't allowed to get any help when we were at school. And it blurs my mind now when I go into schools as an author that, you know, there's always like a little pride group. They call it the rainbow group or the unicorn group. And there's a million different words for it. But I'm always so shocked to see groups of our LGBT kids just hanging out in the library talking about being queer. And I'm just like, this is revolutionary kind of because it was forbidden when I was at school. So any crumb of a trans character when I was a teenager could have changed my life but it's really depressing but there just weren't any I think the first time I saw a trans person on tv was probably Haley in Coronation Street God, it's just it's just it just blows my mind that it's taken this long for for that to kind of be addressed because there's also going back to the sex, ed sex education thing 
there's um, a lot of subjects that you address in the book as well that wouldn't be on the syllabus or people just aren't talked about. For example, just something as basic as the female orgasm. You know, when you're taught about sex as a child, it is purely about reproduction. It's purely like this is something you do to either get pregnant or to please a man. There's no discussion of female pleasure whatsoever. And that obviously has a massive impact. And again, in the book, you talk a lot about female orgasms and you also talk about date rape and you talk about the fetishization of trans women there are all of these issues kind of at play was there anything if if there's kind of one message that you want young readers to take away from this book or one just one lesson what would it be well I think it's it's very timely because obviously we're writing this in the middle of what is being called Cumgate on Twitter, which is the, <laughs> the, the Dominic Cummings, Dominic Cummings uh, yes, saga is playing out politically. And it's interesting when you think about when I was writing this book about, I so I started it nearly two years ago. It was in the run up to a general election. And, you know, I don't write in a vacuum. I was very influenced by what I was seeing as this rising wave of socialism and how young people in particular were being very inspired by the sort of the Corbyn movement and this real possibility that there was an opportunity for change and that there was this, there was a glimmer of hope that we could possibly shake up the system after many, many years of having very centrist politics. And so really, it, this is, as much as she's my trans Alice, she's also my little socialist Alice. And really what she discovers by the end of this book, and it's very timely, is that there's one rule for the rich and one rule for the poor. And, and at the end of the novel, she, I don't want to go into any spoilers, but the experiences she has at Wonderland fundamentally change her. And she recognises a disgusting injustice. And I figured, you know, in the original, in the Disney cartoon, I was like, well, who is this girl, Alice? And she, she doesn't really have any stake in that story. You know, she doesn't have a reason to go after the knave of hearts or the white rabbit, but she does it because it's right, because she's seeking justice. And so I think Alice is the ultimate social justice warrior. And that's really, I think, what I want young people in particular when they're reading this book to recognize that an individual can make a difference and by the end of this novel Alice is ready to bring down the system. Were there any subjects that you were kind of hesitant about exploring in the book or any particular kind of narrative threads that you were a bit cautious of? No but then I've always been a sledgehammer and my mouth has always got me into trouble. Um, already the fact that she's a 17 year old trans girl who has sex has already caused mum's net to melt down. So, oh, has it? Oh yeah, that was, that was a fun day. Luckily I was in the middle of recording the audiobook, so I couldn't really deal, I couldn't really deal with that. But yeah, the, the, some of the users on mum's net, which is very, very transphobic, some of the users on there were up in arms about, you know, is this paedophilia? And you know, oh my God, this is really perverted. And I was like, why? She's 17. The age of consent is 16. And there is, I think, a very distinct line, and it should be very obvious to the readers in the book, that Alice has sex which is consensual, and there is a point where she is almost nearly sexually assaulted. And I think that should be very, very clear to the reader. 
would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So you came out the day after Jermaine Greer said on Newsnight that trans women are not real women, isn't I did. Yeah. Mm. So that's, I mean, Jermaine Greer is obviously Jermaine Greer, but, you know, how do you think we can combat that level of transphobia and you know to someone listening to this and you know whether they're trans or not but if they hear someone make a comment like that how do you respond what's the right way to to combat that and to educate that person without seeming patronizing and just you know just to bring them into the real world and actually help them understand it's difficult because I've, I've, I've come to realize that that it's a huge emotional labor um, often it falls on two trans people themselves to have to have this double role as like educator or like guidance counselor or something. So I think when cis people do that for us, it frees up trans people to get on with their lives. So any help is much appreciated, even if it's just shutting it down. I think it, you know, it's, it's really, really simple things like not misgendering people, obviously not referring to Caitlyn Jenner under her previous name. However much Netflix wants to put old episodes of the Kardashians on. What's that about? I don't get it. Um, and things as well, like never, ever using the T word, which is never complimentary. Let's be clear about that. And for a lot of trans women, it's the last word they hear before they die. Um, so, it's, so, it's, so that's the very most introductory point. I think that that's supporting your trans people 101. But I think it is better to be positive and proactive. So it's way, way better to support trans people or trans groups like mermaids or gendered intelligence than it is to get into endless mumsnet or Twitter debates with people who have really, really made up their minds. Um, mm. And I realized maybe a year, two years ago that I can't keep having the same conversation. And so actually I've decided to kind of just focus on my work. And I think Wonderland says everything I want it to say, you know, so I'm, I'm not going to go on Twitter and 
get into these endless, endless debates with people like Jermaine Greer, although she is, she is just one of many, but um, b- because I think those people, they're, they're sort of spoiling for these debates. And it's true also of climate change deniers. It's true of 5G conspiracy theorists. A big yeah. part of what they want is the argument. Yeah, they're um, just looking and, for an opportunity to get their voice heard, aren't they? It almost doesn't even matter like about actually the the kind of integrity of the, the debate. They don't care. They just want to shout into a void louder I mean, the, and louder. The very most practical thing you could do right now at this point of time for trans people is write a letter to Liz Truss. Um, Liz Truss is the new Women and Equalities Minister and there are rumblings from within her office that potentially she perhaps doesn't quite understand the current legislation around trans people. Some of the things she said have been very misleading. And she she's mentioned this, oh, you know, single sex spaces for women and girls, which of course trans people, well, trans women are fully entitled to use um, facilities because in the eyes of the law, we're women. And so it's concerning that she doesn't seem to recognize almost her own laws around trans people because under the Equalities Act 2010, trans women are legally able to use changing rooms, toilets. And it's, but even the conversations around that are very, very, very scary because of course, you know, transphobic groups seem hell-bent on limiting the existence of trans people particularly mm. trans women because for example i mean as it is i've been through the GRA, gra so it wouldn't directly affect me i am legally a woman on my passport birth certificate the fact i was born trans is eradicated from public view kind of so i would be fine but i think what she either needs to do is she needs to make the process of legally registering yourself as trans easier I think is the important thing. And that's why we needed reform of the Gender Recognition Act in the first place. But it's a little bit worrying that some of the things she said seemed to him that she doesn't really understand the legalities of being trans. And of course, that's hugely concerning. Yeah, that's incredibly concerning. That's also why, though, it's important that you have have that scene in the book where you talk about the toilet. And, and, you know, Alice is kind of, she gets criticised for going into a girl's toilet, doesn't she? And it's just... You know, I think it's it's really difficult for um, it shouldn't be difficult, but for someone who maybe isn't that aware of trans issues, for a cisgendered person to read that, I think it will have a huge impact. Because imagine being doing something as simple as going to the toilet and being made to feel humiliated and being made to feel like you don't belong there. It's like a basic human right. It's just it's just horrific. That's why I think your book will just is so so important, and not just for young adults, for you know people of all ages. Yeah, and I mean you know, trans people, we've always been here, you know, it's kind of, it's, you know, there, there is evidence dating back to the ancient Greeks, you know, it, it's so interesting. And I think, you know, something that I think any listener to this should be aware of is that sort of suspicion of the media. You know, I was in a meeting yesterday with a TV producer, a guy in his fifties, like super East London guy who's worked in TV for years. He went, so what's up with the Sunday Times and trans people? And even he recognised that the Sunday Times seems to have a vendetta against trans people. And so I think it really pays to be critical and inquisitive about the things we're told in the media as well. But, mm. you know, I, I understand that I have a weird privilege in that I'm one of very, very few trans people in the UK who has been given this kind of a platform most trans people 
are really silent. This is a conversation that's happening about us, but not with us. And that's incredibly frustrating. In addition to your writing, you also host the excellent podcast, So I Got to Thinking. So can you please tell me a little bit about why you started that and why you wanted to take a closer look at Sex and the City, which is one of my all-time favourite shows, but is also, you know, there's a lot to discuss about it. So anyway, tell me, why did you want to start it? Well, it's funny because I had ACAST, the lovely people at ACAST had reached out to me years ago. And when, if I'm being honest, I didn't strictly know what a podcast was. I was like, what is this podcast? And they wanted to kind of do something almost alongside my memoir, The Gender Games. And they kind of wanted to do like being trans with Juno Dawson. And I was just like, oh, I just can't have this conversation again. Like I've done it in a book and I'm doing it in a TV show. I can't stop. So I was like, no, no, thank you. Um, and then my friend Dylan, who I adore, and is, the second I met Dylan, I knew, which was in the VIP area at Brighton Pride about four years ago, I was kind of like, oh, we're going to be really good friends. You know, when you just know you're going to be really good friends with someone. And then he said, oh my God, you know, we should do a Sex and the City podcast. And I was wary because I was like, oh, is it going to take up a lot of time? But then I sort of was sleeping on it and I sort of thought, okay, I don't just want to rewatch the episodes and just talk shit about the episodes, although that would have been fun. I wondered if there was like a modern feminist angle to take on that series because its feminist credentials have always been challenged, even in the 90s. Um, you know, people like, is this, you know, is this the rise of feminism or the decline of feminism kind of? And it's perhaps nitpicky to go through a show that's 22 years old and kind of test its woke credentials but it, it's kind of funny as well I mean and we could have done that I guess with friends or with Buffy but um Sex and the City was something that Dylan and I both really really loved and we knew the show inside out as well so it just well we said last year we were like let's live let's give it a go and let's see how it works and I was never expecting to enjoy it as much as we have done and even if no one is listening I suspect Dylan and I will just carry on we'll just keep on going well, I hope you do because it's a really interesting show to discuss today because like you said you know there's this constant debate about what it did for feminism and whether it was actually helpful or unhelpful because it was a progressive show I think in a lot of ways you know you look at a character like Samantha I think she did a lot for championing women who embrace their sexuality and are kind of unashamed about all these taboos that are attached to women having sex. But then it was also very much of its time. You have a look at, you know, the kind of stock gay best friend characters, people like Stanford and Anthony, who kind of play up to these stereotypes. There's also, there's a flippant remark about bisexuality from Carrie. I think she says uh, it's a layover on the way to gay town. Mm -hmm. we, so, so we're, com we're coming up to that one so it's interesting you? we've got a really good guest sorted well assuming we're allowed guests by that point like, let's see <laughs> so I wanted to ask like you know from your perspective what is it about Sex and the City that you think still resonates today and what do you think the positive messages from the show are I think it, it created a safe space for women to talk about sex I think you know, when we look at some of the shows of its era, so and let, let's compare it directly like for like with Ally McBeal or Desperate Housewives, which were around the same time. I don't think those shows are as well remembered because I don't think they, they created a culture shift 
in a way that Sex and the City did, which is Sex and the City made it aspirational to spend time with your girlfriends talking about sex. And I think that obviously women talked about sex before that. But what was interesting is it was a show that was largely steered by gay men. And I think possibly the AIDS crisis necessitated conversations about sex in the gay community. You had to talk about sex. Um, and I think, I, but then I always think the rules for queer people are slightly different anyway. So they kind of transposed some of the rules for gay people into four straight women or straight-ish. Samantha had a girlfriend for three episodes. Um, um, and, and I think that, that was the, the change. And I think, so when, when I'm out, with my girlfriends drinking co- insanely expensive cocktails and talking about sex. That's partly because that was normalized by sex in the city. So I think that is the gift it gave to the world. Yeah, that's a really good point actually, isn't it? And I think, you know, it's, there's so many interesting archetypes in that show. I think particularly with the men um, as well, if you look at, you know, like Mr. Big, he was kind of the classic fuckboy, isn't he? Mm-hmm. And, and there's this kind of perennial debate between Big versus Aiden. So Big is the fuckboy because, you know, he treats Carrie like crap. And, but, you know, he's, he's very wealthy and he's like this classic alpha male type. Uh, he's a bit older than Carrie. Um, he kind of, yeah, he treats her like crappy strings are along, can't commit, can't articulate his emotions. Then you've got Aiden, who is incredibly kind adores Carrie would never do anything to hurt her but is also portrayed as just a bit boring Mm. (laughs) and I think it's because of that that you know people say now they're like oh you know he's just he's a bit too he's a bit too nice for me I'm not sure I think and this is something that I've been figuring out with this rewatch putting a very critical eye on it it's a lot to do with I think maturity and I think it's not so much that Aiden is boring, it's that he's very immature mm. and he wants Carrie and he wants her now and he doesn't understand what the problem is. Whereas Carrie, and I think Sarah Jessica Parker has spoken about this, is it was her turn to be Mr. Big and her turn to not be ready. And then that enables Carrie to understand why Big wasn't ready, which in turn is how they can then get together at the end. Because finally Carrie understands what it felt like to be Mr. Big to have that pressure kind of bearing down on her because she applied pressure to Big and in turn Aiden applies pressure to Carrie. So whether, whether they meant for that to be the arc, I don't know, but that's, what, that's how I read the story. So in a different time, perhaps Carrie and Aiden would have ended up together, but at that time, Carrie wasn't ready. That's so interesting. Do you think, do you think that looking at those two men and I just mean those two kind of stock characters. Oh. Do you think people should go for, do you think people should go for the Aiden or the big in general, in general life terms? I think, and it was just time we just recorded one last night. I think you should always go for the one where it's not painful. And we were talking about um, the difference between overcoming obstacles or things being difficult because sometimes love can be difficult but I'm not sure it should ever be painful and I think that's when Big and Carrie got together when it stopped being painful um, and when it just started being fun and comfortable and so I always think that's because I think 
a, a character like Big, a man like Big can be very exciting, but I think it can be very, very painful as well. And I think, you know, I've seen girlfriends spend many, many years in relationships which are ultimately just going to hurt them. And I don't think I would ever encourage that. Go, go for the man who isn't going to hurt you. Finally, do you think there's an, a female equivalent to those two archetypes? I'm quite, I'm quite sure there is. I think, I think we all have that in us to be withholding and we all have it in us to be overbearing. I, I think I've done both. Um, and I, I think that's why real life gets more complicated than television because in real life we are all both Aiden and Big. And I know that answer is a bit of a cop-out, but I think, you know, from a per- you don't even speak for yourself, but from a personal experience, I met a really wonderful man not long after I sort of started my transition in 2015. And he was really keen. And I was just like, what? I can't, you know, I don't get it because I had so much to do. I was doing so much work on myself that there was no way I could commit to a relationship. And, you know, in, in that situation, I was big. You know, I was, I was being really elusive and I didn't treat him fairly at all. And I should have just said right from the get-go, I cannot commit to anything. Um, whereas, you know, there have been other times in my life where, you know, I've fallen for people and I've desperately wanted it to work. And I've put real pressure on guys to kind of, you know, try and make something happen. And they've been elusive. So. Yeah, I think you're right, actually. It kind of depends at what stage in life you're at mm. and what kind of relationship you're ready for because I think a lot of the time we don't actually we're not conscious of that ourselves at the time it's only in retrospect where we can look back and think oh yeah I acted like a big because I just wasn't ready for a relationship like I wonder that. if I think sometimes I think the best line of dialogue from Sex in the City from the whole run is the conversation about um cabs putting on their lights about how sort of men sort of can drive around for years without their light on and then the light goes on and you've got that, you've got that five minute slot to get with him because then that's it. He's off the menu kind of. And, but I think that's also true of women as well. I think, you know, for all of my 20s, because I was still figuring myself out, I was driving around London kind of, you know, with my light on when it would have probably been far more sensible to turn it off and actually spend that time focusing on myself. That's really good advice, which actually brings us perfectly now to our lessons in love segment. So this is the part of the show where I ask each guest to share something that they've learned from their own relationship experiences and talk a bit about how it shaped their understanding of love moving forward. So Juno, what is your lesson in love that you have to share? Okay, my lesson in love is it should feel easy. That's, what, that's the piece of advice I would give to myself. Um, when I was 18, I would go back and say all that waiting for guys to reply and worrying about what are they thinking, trying to read between the lines of text messages and sort of like, what does it all mean? No, if it's right, you won't need to do that because actually in, in the relationships, and I think I've had three that really, really worked. Um, it was like falling off a log. You know, I don't think, and I think if you're putting yourself through these trials to make it work, it's meant to be fun. 
love is meant to be fun. That's a really interesting point because, again, I think that's not a narrative that we see perpetuated in popular culture whatsoever. In fact, I think it's often the opposite. Yeah. And this is something I've written about quite a lot because look at look at normal people. You know that that book and that TV series, which has been you know hyped Huge. everywhere, it's about a toxic relationship, and and yet it's kind of it's kind of portrayed in the way that this is a relationship that you're supposed to want because their love is so meaningful because it's on and off and because it's because it's got all these hardships and they've had to overcome so many things it's like oh yes they're really meant to be together but then if you actually break it down you know it's so dysfunctional what they have they they cheat on each other when they're with other partners they they let each other down they don't communicate with one another properly so it's kind of pegged as this great love story and it's like actually no. it shouldn't be that hard should it I mean, and this is going all, you know, going back to Twilight and Wuthering Heights and, you know, any of these, unfortunately, these great romances are often quite toxic. But unfortunately, real love doesn't make for very good television. <laughs> it has to be said, having come from a writer's room this morning where we're, we're planning a new TV show about modern love, kind of not modern love, the TV show, a show about modern love. And um yeah, but unfortunately, to, to tell good stories, unfortunately, sometimes you do need to put obstacles in the way. Um, I think normal people, it rings true, but I certainly don't think it's aspirational. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you're a new listener to this show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or anywhere else. You can comment and leave us a rating too so that more people can find us. Keep up to date with everything to do with Millennial Love on Instagram. Just search Millennial Love. See you soon. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.